I'm Simba Kader, and you're listening to the MLOps Weekly Podcast. Today, I'm chatting with Stefan Kravchik, former manager of data platform at StitchFix. He built and later open-sourced the Hamilton framework while he was there. And prior to that, he was an MLE at LinkedIn, Nextdoor, and an NLP for an enterprise startup that, in his own words, crashed and burned. Uh, Stefan, so great to have you on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Simba. Excited. I gave a quick outline of how you got into MLOps, but I'd love to hear it in your own words. Like, What was your story that got you into MLOps? So how did I get into MOPS? Well, I originally did computer science at Stanford and AI specialization. So I knew I wanted to do something around, you know, this new field of, you know, ML AI. So I guess at LinkedIn, I kind of pivoted to kind of prototyping content-based recommendation products. So I got, you know, first-hand experience of like what it's like to build a model and try to get out to production. And next door, I built similar things and related tools and technologies. So like the first version of Data Warehouse that then we could build and get data to train models with and online experimentation, A-B testing frameworks. And so uh, and so that's what led me to go to the startup because I wanted to get better at machine learning frameworks because I really wanted to understand how to operate them, how to build them, because I thought that was the future. So then the opportunity came up at Stitchfix was like, you know, come and help build a machine learning platform because that's kind of what, before MLOps was coined, that was, I think people were trying to build machine learning platforms. And so that's what I was kind of interested in doing. And then in which case, while I was at Stitchfix, it was, I was building, you know, a little more than just a platform, but, you know, just trying to help data scientists build get things to production themselves. The MLOps, I guess, term was coined. So it was great. This is like the easiest way that I can explain to someone what me and my team does is that, you know, we're trying to help data scientists operationalize machine learning in a way that's self-service. Right? I love that. Yeah, I love, I love a lot of these terms. Like with us, like we see a lot with feature stores where I'll define a feature store as someone and we're like, oh yeah, we have that. And it's like, yeah, I mean, everyone built all these things. Anyone who's been doing machine learning production has been doing MLOps forever. I just, we didn't call it that. And we didn't really even think about it that way. Like we didn't really break it down in that way. It was just like the platform for machine learning. For us, like the feature store was something we used to call it our data platform for machine learning. Like it wasn't the feature store that term kind of came later. And we said, yeah, that's what we built. It's a feature store. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's like it's similar to how DevOps came about. It's just like, oh, you know, rather than handing off, you're now trying to you know, do things yourself in a best practices way to get things to production. In which case, I was like, yeah, I mean, adding a feature store and thinking about features and models and data, it's a whole ecosystem. So which case, like, I think, yeah, it makes sense. That I was happy that whoever came up with it came up with it because I'm like, great, this is like makes my job much easier to explain. But, you know, thinking about the software engineering best practices and, yeah, again, trying to bring in like the DevOps mindset of like, how do you operationalize things without breaking production? You want to stop bad things from happening, so what's a good way to think about and do it? Well, you've kind of answered this question, but I want to just ask you so it's, I guess, discreet for anyone listening. How would you define MLOps? Yeah, I mean, so, so riffing on what I just said before, for me, the whole goal of the mindset of MLOps is to you know, stop bad things from happening in production. But you're doing it and approaching it in such a way that you're bringing, you know, what's, I guess, what's termed developer operations or DevOps kind of best practices for deploying and getting to production. But then you're also thinking about software engineering best practices because machine learning is also data and code that then you ship and package together. So it's really this kind of, yeah, mindset of a, how do you stop bad things from happening in production? And then what are the techniques and ways and framings that you can kind of employ to make that happen? Yeah, I love that you brought up. DevOps. It's interesting to see how everyone's view of MLOps versus DevOps. They're obviously different things, but some people will say they're completely different. Other people are like, yeah, I mean, it's just the same thing applied in different places. Some people, I've talked to some people who are like, yeah, it's like 90% the same. Like MLOps doesn't even have to exist. How would you define like the difference between MLOps and DevOps? 
for me, DevOps, when I, you know, in Canada was like, oh, rather than it being someone else's job function, a job role rather to deploy my code, I now as a developer are deploying it myself. Like for me, I think like MLOps is, if you think about, if you take DevOps next sort of mindset, like how do you enable someone to develop and deploy and develop things as part of the job function? Then I think to me, that's, that's similar to an MLOps mindset. Now, DevOps, I think is, I mean, I want to say it's probably right now, to me, it's actually a subset of MLOps, right? Because if you think about deploying to production, then maybe there's a little bit of disjointness in DevOps because, you know, it focuses on, you know, things that deployments that are, would never be machine learning deployments. But I think, you know, right now, one DevOps is, is a subset of the other and helps feed into like any best practices in DevOps. I'm pretty sure you can bring them back into MLOps. I love that. It's funny that in the last episode we had, we had James, who's an investor, and he said one open question is, the size of the DevOps market versus the MLS market. You're not exactly saying that, but I love the idea of like, well, the MLS market is it's a superset. It's DevOps and more. Putting models of production, like there's, it kind of hits every pain point of data ops, DevOps, and just all these other things in between. So it's all, you're kind of right. Like, I can't imagine someone having a really good MLS workflow without also having an amazing DevOps workflow. Same with data ops. It's almost like you need both as a foundation. And then you need to find a way to apply that for your machine learning team to kind of, I guess, get it all working together as MLOps. Could you share some things that, I guess, manifested in like what makes, so putting a service in production versus putting a mall in production? Could you talk about, I mean, we dissolve differences, but could you talk about maybe a story of, of something that happened that could only happen in machine learning, but you have to solve? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all right. What's a model? I mean, it's a function with, I mean, you think about it from first principles in terms of like, hey, you want to predict something, well, there's going to be some function somewhere that you pass some data in, and then that function actually has some state has some maternal state that is like, you know, the coefficients of a model. And so together with the inputs, you're then transforming and using, computing something with that internal state and outputting a result. And so if in traditional, I guess, software engineering and, you know, apps or services, there isn't like really any internal state. It's all pretty invariant and very easy to reason about, about the inputs that you get and the outputs. So you can be, you know, you can write unit tests and like that's, as long as you, you have great unit test coverage, pretty much there's nothing wrong that can go, go wrong in production with your app. Yeah. But with MLOps and putting a machine learning model into production, right? I think you have to really think about all the different there are so many more, I guess you could say things that could go wrong. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's a if you have a model, uh, rather time, so there's so many components to putting a model into production that can go wrong, really, whereas with a traditional app, like the thing is invariant given time. So as time goes on, as long as expectations that you coded things, the inputs that you expect come in as, as expected, you know, you don't have to update or change that app. With the model, that's not necessarily true. Particularly since, you know, your model, if your inputs shift in kind of inputs and uh, values over time, then maybe the internal state that you have in the model actually is, you know, becomes to be less relevant and actually starts to output and change different results. Whereas in the other app, everything's pretty much hard coded and it's very, very easy to kind of reason about with the model. You know, that's, that's not quite the case. Then it's, well, it usually happens that you're also updating models probably far more often than you are updating, you know, that internal app logic. So if you think of that function endpoint and how many different versions there are over the course of a, you know, over time, you know, as you update the model, you, you have to read, I don't know, get that update to to the app somehow. So how do you do that in a way that doesn't break things? Once it's in there, you know, how do you reason about ensure that things aren't changing for the worse or, or if they're changing for the better? Like, so you need, you know, a bit more measurement and kind of observability around it. And then, yeah, I mean, and so then what happens in production then also flows back to also 
creating a better model. So you kind of have a loop, or at least you, you should always be thinking about when you're deploying a model that there is a, this is going to be kind of this feedback loop that you have to kind of think about. Whereas with the, with the traditional app, like I think it's, you know, you can be one and done it and kind of, other than adding new features to the app, which which is where, you know, DevOps practices, I think, you know, really help uh, from, from that sort of perspective. But in terms of once you've kind of created a feature, it's probably not going to change very much unless the business changes. And that changes it on a much slower pace than on, a, on the pace of a model as it kind of evolves. Yeah, I, I like thinking about, because for us, we were dealing, I mean, my last company, we built a lot of recommender systems, which I'm sure you dealt with quite a bit at Stitch Fix. And yeah, one of the problems that we always ran into is there's no such thing as like the perfect recommender system. And sometimes, for example, like a user would say, oh, like this user got a really bad recommendation. And it's like, well, how do you fix that? I mean, one option is that you write some if statement, band-aid on it. But other option is you try to retrain the model and fix that, but then it becomes kind of whack-a-mole. And kind of, you can't unit test it, right? Because it's, it's kind of what the mall has learned. And so we had to do all kinds of like, well, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we built to make it possible. And these are just things that would never happen, like you said, and something that is much more like a standard programming. Like if something is wrong, you can go and debug it. If a model is outputting garbage sometimes, what do you do? <laughs> you know, it's not really a good answer. Um, you can retrain. You could just you can just try things and hope it fixes it, or you really have to. There's no perfect way to do it. You can't just go in and say, "Hey, I'm going to change this weight to 1.7, and then like it will all work out." And I think that's kind of where a lot of these problems come into play. Uh, yeah, like I think the way that I kind of think about it is that well, a model statistical, right? So there is rather than it being a binary outcome, which traditional programming you kind of do with with a model, there's a statistical set of outcomes. In which case, there is this kind of well, there are some some areas where the results not going to be that good, and we're not going to know what to do here, right? So uh, yeah, definitely bring some uncertainty into <laughs> into kind of running a production service. Yeah, and, and one thing you talked about is you know we already talked about a bit, but I want to bring it back to the forefront, is in the early days of MLOps, we didn't even call it MLOps. And nowadays, there's a whole set of startups, there's a whole space, there's all these categories that we've defined. I guess, how has MLOps changed over the years from your perspective? Yeah, good question. I think back in the day... People were, I don't know, such as myself, like we were an embedded engineer and a team and we basically did things end to end. And then as companies start bringing ML back then, it was like, well, you need a bit of, let's build a platform to centralize some of this cost. And so I think that's where the move to kind of, yeah, ML platform and building ML platforms. So I think Uber's Michelangelo is a, is a classic example of this. And then I think, you know, people realize that, well, there's a whole ecosystem around it. You need to build a fully blown solution like Michelangelo to get any value. So I think it's like, you know, the mindset and practice, therefore, I think of MOPs emerge, right? How has it changed? I think the, you know, there's definitely more widespread adoption of machine learning and people realizing that they have similar problems. But then also, I think, realizing that there isn't one solution that fits every single kind of use case. Ad serving technology and machine learning models there is very different than predicting health outcomes. They have different, you could say, velocities of model retraining and stuff like that. And so I think there's been a more emergence and, and kind of acknowledgement, I think, from, from industry that, yeah, there are all these different problems and not there's you can't build a single platform that will serve everyone. People have tried, <laughs> I think. Those haven't traditionally been gone too well. But yeah, I think there's also the people who are doing you know, MLOps has changed over the years. So I think it was very much CS heavy 
computer science kind of background basically now I think it's anyone who comes from the other end who's coming from hey I, I know how to build a model say an applied physicist as a statistician you know how can I now think about deploying and, and pushing things to production and so in which case I think potentially like less software engineering classical training background people probably you know getting into things versus you know before it was yeah you basically if you were a machine learning engineer you had a you're almost guaranteed to have a software engineering background now i don't think that's you know the case so which case that impacts i think the framing and like who's using and the pitch and tooling frame ops yeah i love that breakdown so i'm like there's almost three stages that you mentioned stage one was ml ops wasn't a thing you were just an engineer on a machine learning team or a team that happened to be doing machine learning and your goal was just get in production Stage two was like, hey, we'll build a, t- a platform team that kind of does this for all company. And then stage three is kind of where we're at now or what we're getting into, which is, hey, we don't really need to have a custom platform per company. Like a lot of these things look the same in different places and there's lots of nuance. So what we really need is almost like a set of tools, like DevOps tools that we can bring in and configure to fit our workflow. And it is interesting to like compare DevOps to this because it's very similar. Like, you know, stage one was you have an engineer on the team and their goal was just like, get it into production somehow. Like, we'll build it. Like, that person's job is, or maybe it was shared amongst engineers, like, get in prod, make sure it doesn't go down. If it goes down, like, you get a call at 2 a.m. and you go figure it out. And stage two was, well, we'll build our own DevOps platform, like Google built Borg, and there's all kinds of other examples of DevOps tool sets that were created. And then I think now we're kind of in that third stage, which is, hey, we don't need to go and build Borg. You know, Kubernetes exists, like even like all the HashiCorp tools exist, like CI CD exists. There's all this other open source tooling that we can take up and bring together with fair workflow. It is kind of a bit of like the same thing happening over again, but just applied in a different for a different problem space. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's like, you know, something like, because it says something about the maturity of how solutions kind of permeate through industry, I think. Yeah. Well, with all the changes that are happening, how do you yourself like keep up with everything? It feels like there's a new new blog post, new something every single day. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's it can be overwhelming. So I think my go-tos are generally Twitter. So the way I discover things is Twitter is one way. I think there's engineering blogs from the tech companies, and then there's like the rise of Substack and you know all the various newsletters. And so, you know, I subscribe to a bunch of them that kind of uh, I thought were kind of interesting. I end up what I end up generally doing is skimming headlines and then bookmarking things later that I want to kind of read. But that's I don't think I have the best methodology. So the things that get the most buzz are generally you know I probably have see because of the way I look at things. But otherwise, it's useful from like the things that I I have bookmarked is trying to get an understanding for the mindset of like why was this thing created? Because I think to the point where you know there isn't one solution that fits all. You know people create solutions for for different reasons, and so I think it's useful to you know vicariously live through those kind of posts and things, this thing, you know, actually, I'm trying to understand why it was created in the first place. Like, was it an organizational thing that led to this particular solution versus them building another one, right? That's an interesting kind of question to ask sometimes with these decisions, because it's not true with MLOps that, like, every company has the same topology, in which case, like, different solutions you might be selling to different people, even, you know, should I build versus buy, right? It really depends on your company topology. So I, I kind of, at least from, you know, staying up to date, I try to step back a bit and at least ask the question, you know, why was it created and what was the environment that created it. So maybe there's something to learn like, oh, okay, smaller companies do this or big companies, they have these problems, right? And so that's that's the kind of, at least way that I kind of, things I look to take away from reading posts and things. 
Can you, uh, I guess, name drop a few people that people should follow or some substacks you like or anything? Just to name a couple just for people while listening who want to at least get started. <laughs> so your mileage may vary. So I'm terrible at remembering names. I just know that it comes in my inbox. The last one that I remember reading was the sequence on Substack. Otherwise, on, on Twitter, it's I follow Sarah from Amplify, Amplify Partners. So tweets and so data ecosystem, ML ecosystem there. I think if you know of any of the open source projects, you know, follow their Twitter handles, maybe follow some of the core contributors on them. You'll kind of get see updates. Maybe they, they'll go to a conference or something and then you can pick things up that way. But I think, you know, there's, I try to have, so I have Josh Wills from the data engineering side. I follow the ML kind of AI gurus. So, you know, Andrew Wing, Andre Kapathy, I think. I try to hit people from the various, you know, big tech companies, follow there. There's Sebastian Ramirez from Fast API. I think, you know, since I, I've been living in a Python based world, I also fo- focus on, you know, Python based things. And so following a, a bunch of those people there. Yeah. So try to follow some people from data side, the, you know, ML upside, you can follow me or you, Simba. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, from the, you know, the actual machine learning infrastructure and like where industry and like interesting things that are happening, it's following, you know, the AI, ML research people. Yeah. You know, everyone should probably follow a mix of each section. Like you need to understand what's happening in AI, to understand, you need to understand what's happening in data more broadly, you need to understand what's happening in ML specifically from practitioners to vendors. Like you kind of need to, I guess, cast a wide net to really kind of make sure you catch the things that matter. There's a lot of noise and there's just a lot of things being figured out it's almost like trying to keep up on papers. Like you just can't. You just have to kind of find a way to figure out what is and isn't worth keeping up with. And you have a class coming out that I saw on August 22nd. Can you share some more about it? Yeah, yeah. So I'm partnering with Sphere. So they're, they're a recent YC batch company. And it's called Mastering Model Deployment and Inference. The idea is to, it's kind of like an executive ed style class for practitioners. So, so it's four two-hour kind of sessions. The goals are to try to, you know, give people the skill set and ability or at least the know-how to improve latency and throughput by, you know, thinking about like, how do you select appropriate inference architectures? How do you reduce outages or the mean time to resolution? How do you do that? And like, what are some common model observability approaches to do so? What's the overall kind of macro architecture? And what is the impact of your machine learning architecture with respect to, you know, reliability, scalability, and, you know, getting models to production? I mean, so if you think about if you're thinking about questions such as you know what components should my model deployment system have, where will my current approach to you know deployment inference break down? You know, I'm going to be it's the class is you know, isn't going to be all lecture based. It's going to be me lecturing a little bit, but then it's going to be some group work or like you could say group discussion. Hopefully, there'll be some other you know machine learning engineers or people who deploy stuff to production, so that you know there'll be some interesting networking. There'll also be some interesting you know questions asked of like you know, I have this problem, etc. So you can maybe learn through your classmates. So hopefully by the end of the class, you know, learners, you'll be able to answer, you know, questions that's something like the following. So what are the components that my model deployment system should have? I think it's kind of an interesting one as to like, not everyone needs every single component because I don't think it really depends on your SLA and what's the cost of an outage. So, you know, discussion as to like, what components should you have? And then, you know, maybe even helping you take a critical look at like, well, what is my current approach to deployment and inference? And where is it going to break down? What is going to be painful for the business or for me? And so, and then what do I want to do about it? So like, what are some architectural approaches or changes that I could, patterns that I could use to like help make a decision. What are some, you know, architectures slash patterns or tools that, you know, can help me reduce my outages or my mean time to resolution. So a class that I guess will try to pack in a lot in four sessions, but the idea is that it's, you know, a framework agnostic and that you can kind of try to take away some general mindset thinking and patterns that you can apply uh, to your particular context. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, we'll have a link at the bottom. So if you want to check it out, if anyone listening wants to check it out, you'll be able to learn more there. 
Well, let's talk about Stitch Fix. As your last role, you built out a lot of the ML infrastructure there. Maybe you could share how did the ML workflow look like at Stitch Fix? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for those who don't know, I mean, Stitch Fix has 100 plus data scientists, which their kind of role was to iterate, prototype, productionize, and then be on call for, for models. So we're trying to build you know, tooling and abstractions to enable them to, like like software engineering, Lego bricks, pull things off the shelf and create their, their workflow and getting things to production with our software engineering, Lego bricks, rather than them having to engineer things themselves. So that's the kind of the mindset and kind of the thing that we're going for. And so and so we were always competing with people doing things themselves. And so in which case, the task of you know, my team was to like build better tooling and get people to adopt our, our stuff. So by the end of it, we were working on a way to kind of a YAML and Python kind of a YAML config and Python code-driven way to kind of creating machine learning pipelines. So the idea was to how do you enable people to kind of more easily manage and create pipelines because that was a, a kind of a bit of a problem at Stitrix where everyone kind of wrote their machine learning pipelines in different ways. How do you standardize it? So we'll make headways. So the idea was to go, well, if we can get people to kind of write these kind of configs that then would under the hood essentially compile down to kind of airflow jobs, how do we kind of build this API layer that, you know, we're not leaking airflow, we're not leaking too much of the context, but we're standardizing and trying to simplify how people specify things in a way that is helps ensure that things aren't too coupled so that if they want to reuse something or change something, it's not going to be a lot of pain and effort to do so. And that was then all built on top of a little kind of framework we called the model envelope. So it was like our ML flow, model DB type analogous kind of technology. So the model envelope metaphor, uh, or it's an with the model envelope as the metaphor kind of I'm trying to suggest is you have a model and an envelope and then you're shoving things not only about the model but things about it into it and then we're packaging up in an envelope so that we could then you know use it in various contexts without you having to write any code to do so. So at Citrix you could write a model save it and then you could have it deployed into production in under an hour because we could auto generate the kind of the web service code for you. And so getting to production was, at least the model to production was, was pretty easy. Getting features to production, it was a little harder. We still had to kind of implement things in potentially two places or we're trying to fix that, uh, you know, move on that to try to make it only one. And then we're also trying to, you know, simplify the management of model pipelines since over time, as the team grows, you generally inherit and have more machine learning models or more pipelines that grow. So how do you kind of manage that? And so that's where that effort was going is to help teams not have to incur tech debt by relying on a platform, less so their own code. So a lot of it was kind of standardizing, once you have the weights or whatever, like the model itself, it's like standardizing everything around it. How is it deployed? What does it need as inputs? All that and making it so that with this, once you fill all these configuration files for me, like I'll make it so in production. Yeah, yeah, right. So the model envelope was, you could say, independent from the system for kind of defining your model training pipelines, but essentially, yeah, like with the DevOps and MLOps kind of mindset, we're trying to, put in the hooks and things such that people, you know, didn't have to make different decisions on how do you log things in a web service. We just kind of standardize it by actually saying, well, we'll just generate the web service for you. And it's like, well, what are the things that we should save about the model? So hence, we introspected the Python environment to make sure, you know, that we capture the Python dependencies exactly as what they were so that we can, one, always reproduce the model, but then two, you know, have a have a pretty good idea of like how to, what's required to run it in production. And then with the kind of, the system to kind of simplify model training, at model training pipelines. It was around a lot of people wrote 
model training code that was highly coupled to their context and it was very hard to share that. And so how do you do that? Well, you needed to couple how you provide inputs into the model training process. So in which case it was like, yeah, software abstraction was configured to kind of split the two apart of like how you create and featureize data and provide it to training and make the training, the process of, you know, creating a model pretty standardized in a way that is agnostic of how data gets to it. What's the design decision that you made in building this that perhaps someone listening is building like a model surveying or a similar thing? Like what's something you decided that you can maybe share that worked really well? Yeah, I mean, I think the easiest probably to talk about, I guess, the model envelope. So one of the, the ideas was we were trying to, we don't have an API that someone triggers to deploy a model at the end of their pipeline. So if you look at a bunch of these frameworks, they have, you know, you save the model, but then somewhere along the lines is a, you know, deploy model step. We explicitly made a decision to kind of not have that. And instead, people then need to go to our little went to the web service kind of UI and write a little kind of a rule-based little set of rules that would trigger a deployment. And that was so that was very easy for us to then insert and stick in a CI CD step such that we could enforce one. So for anyone who wanted to deploy something, you know, we could make it very easy for someone to like, oh, you want to deploy this model? Okay, well, maybe you want to deploy it to staging first do some things with staging, say that it's good, and then we'll kick off a production deployment. Whereas if we had allowed people to kind of stick and deploy model at the end of their script, we wouldn't have had as much control with respect to like inserting and upgrading and changing you know, how, how models are deployed. And so we made a very explicit yeah, decision that like you can't trigger deployment programmatically. You need to do it through our service, which where you set up a, a, some rules. And so then, yeah, which was, I think, you know, that was, worked really well for us. We were able to yeah ensure that if we wanted to change how things are deployed or things how things are triggered. We only had to change our service. We didn't have to change anyone else's kind of pipelines or code or anything. So that was, yeah, one very explicit decision we made. That's fascinating. That's a very interesting decision. I feel like that can apply in a lot of different places. Like it's not like a lot of MLOps tooling, I think is very, yeah, you say send or say deploy and making it so that you almost can't do that. It has to be integrated into the right system and being very opinionated. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, I also want to talk about Another big project that obviously you've shared a lot about is Hamilton. And maybe you could share more. For those who don't know, like what is Hamilton and how did it fit into the system? So Hamilton is a declarative data flow paradigm in Python. So what do I mean by that? It's, it's declarative in that as you're writing code, you're declaring an output and then you're declaring what inputs. And so you're not writing procedural code when you're writing data flow. So what's a data flow? Data flow is basically an academic term for you're basically modeling how data and computation kind of flow. So you can think of it analogous to you know, workflow, a pipeline. You're basically building a workflow or a pipeline. And Hamilton, where it fits in and where it came from, was it was actually our first one of the earlier projects that we did. And it was to kind of help a team who was doing time series feature engineering. And the code base, it was like one of the oldest teams at Stitch Fix. They were a team that created forecasts, operational forecasts for the business that the business made decisions on. So they were always under the gun to like produce numbers or forecasts so that the business could make decisions. And so in which case, they're not a team that had time to address tech debt or anything like that. And essentially, they were in such a state that their feature engineering code was spaghetti code. And that's partly because with time series feature engineering, you are creating a lot of features. So you basically think of a data frame or the data frame that you're going to be training or fitting a model on. It's thousands of columns wide. It's not necessarily big data, but it's, it's very wide data. And it's very wide because of the feature engineering process because you're usually deriving features from other features. So you're basically chaining features together to create other features. And that, if you do it in a procedural way, 
Like I think it's once you get to a certain scale, your code can very easily devolve into spaghetti code, especially if you're using pandas. And so Hamilton was built to try to mitigate and ensure that things are you know always unit testable, they're documentation friendly, and can kind of help them with their workflow of creating features and generating this featureized data frame. So rather than writing procedural code, so back to Hamilton, so rather than writing procedural code where you're doing column C equals you know column A plus column B, you would rewrite that as a function where the function name is C or column C, and then the function inputs, the, the input arguments, column A and column B. And then you'd have your logic to you know, sum column A and column B. You could use the function doc string to document it. And so anywhere that you basically have assignment, you're rewriting in a script, you're rewriting it into a function. And then you then have to write a little, what we call a little driver script, but the driver script's uh, purpose is to basically stitch together these functions. So because the function name declares an output, if you want to create, actually create column C or use column C and some other, then you would have to basically, you, you write all these functions. We then crawl the Python code, your Python code in this kind of what we call a driver object to create a directed acyclic graph. So basically it's a dependency chain of like, hey, if I want to compute column C, I know I need to compute, I need A and B as input. We're in A and B. Well, A and B can either be defined as either functions. So you would look for a function name with column A, column B, or that'd be provided as inputs. And so Hamilton decouples the, the modeling of the data flow or the pipeline from materialization. So you're writing these declarative functions that declare a workflow or a pipeline or a data flow of how data and compute move through. And then you're writing this kind of driver script that's actually defining the DAG. And that's where you're, you're either you know, providing configuration and inputs. And then at the end, you're specifying what you want computed. Now, with Hamilton, you can specify, or you rather, you can model a superset of transforms and things. And only in the driver, you only have to request the things that you need. And because we have a DAG or directed acyclic graph, we can kind of walk the graph in a way that we only compute what we need. So this then means, you know, you can test integration test things very easily. You don't have to, you don't have to have a monolithic script where it's like if you add something, you need to run everything to test something. No, with Hamilton, it's very easy to just, you know, test that one thing you add end to end. It's also very easy to, to unit test because it, it, you write everything as functions. Those functions, you're not leaking how data gets into it. So it's very easy to, you know, to write a unit test that you know, passes in the right data to exercise the logic. And so that's been you know, running a production at Stitchfix for over you know, two and a half years. Since then, you know, we open sourced it in October. We've been adding a few more things to it. So if you want to scale onto Ray and Dask, it's very easy to do so. You don't have to do anything. You just have to change some driver code. And then we recently just added some you know, basic ability to do some runtime data quality checks. So common complaint was, hey, my pipelines are running. I think the code looks good, but the output is crap. You know, what's going on? Well, now with Hamilton, it's very easy to set with the function just above it with a decorator. You can kind of set some expectations such that, you know, when things run at execution time, you can, we can run a quick check to ensure, you know, types are there, there aren't no NANs, or if there's, you know, there should be less than, you know, 5% of NANs and things like that. So I think Hamilton right now is a pretty interesting tool for anyone doing any feature engineering and especially if you're doing time series feature engineering. Yeah, one thing I've even just based off of listening to a lot of what you've been saying that I can have a very similar opinion on as you is most of the MLOPS problems are abstraction problems. A lot of people train like infrastructure problems. The hard part of MLOPS, in my opinion, is getting the right abstractions and workflow to, you kind of have to be opinion in some places and very configurable in others. You have to be like, hey, you need to do things this way. That's the only way to keep things versioned, organized, testable, etc. In other places, it's like, hey, like if you want to use, like in your example, like Ray or Dask, then it shouldn't matter for MLOps. Like, just do it wherever you want. Train, use, you know, if you want to use TensorFlow, you want to use PyTorch, we don't really care because that's whatever you need as a data scientist. What we care about is all the coordination and metadata 
that comes and to allow you to do that without having to like manually say, hey, this is this and it goes here. We have to kind of set some parameters, some framework so that you follow this framework and we'll all, it will, it's implied where it will go, what version it is, what the name is, all this other stuff that you want in the MLS pipeline. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I think that's like, yeah, to prevent thing, bad things from happening in production, you really need all that extra metadata, right? And so how do you, I think with the abstractions, like, yeah, how do you get people to do it? So it's either, you know, they procedurally have to add things in, which in case people forget, you can, or they don't do it at all because it's extra work. So then how do you do it in a way that can pull out the things automatically was, yeah, like part of the theme of like my team at Stitch Fix was, yeah, how can we do that in a way that people just don't have to think about it and it's the right way to do it? And so which case, Hamilton's a bit of this theme as well. Like you write functions, oh, they're automatically unit testable just by design, right? I mean, you don't have to think about it later. You don't have to like, well, and so, yeah, I definitely feel that, yeah, it's an abstraction problem if you want to do MLOps well. Well, we've talked about so much different aspects of MLOps from serving to data pipelines to how it's changed over the years. What's something you're most excited about in ML space right now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- that's a good question. I think there is so many open source tools. There's also so many startups and companies trying to do something in space. I think, I mean, if I was a practitioner and I like to build models, I'd be excited because it's never been easier to kind of get something up and running without you having to build all of it yourself. Yeah, I think to me, one of the things that I'm kind of, I guess, looking to is like, you know, how does low code solutions impact MLOps? And how much code are people actually going to be writing to get models to production? Is it going to be config-based stuff? So I think, you'd, is it going to be you know integrated with SQL? So you, you see companies, like I guess there's I the guys out of Uber, I think Ludwig, they're, a little, they're trying to use you know, SQL-like syntax to, to help people do models and do modeling. I think there's, yeah, there's a bunch of companies like that. Then there's, I think, companies that are trying to appeal to more people who want to write a little bit more code. So like, to me, it's kind of exciting to see all these different kind of approaches emerge. And I'm kind of <laughs> wondering you know, who's going to win, which one's going to actually ultimately win out. I wouldn't be surprised if everyone wins because there are so many ways and so many different companies that have machine learning but are structured and function differently and have different SLAs, in which case there could be a win for all of them. But otherwise, just the Cambrian explosion, you could say, of MLOps tools. So I'm excited to see how things evolve as to you know, what eventually dies off and what, what actually sticks. I love that. I feel like there's so much more we could, we could cover, but we do have to eventually wrap up. And I guess I'd love to like hear almost like a TLDR. Like what is a tweet length takeaway that someone listening to this podcast should leave with? Well, of course, you know, use Hamilton and take my course, right? You know, no. Yeah, I think the tweet length takeaway is, I think, understanding the environment of which you operate, that's not a tweet length. I guess that's, that's not tweet length. And, you, know, you should understand the impact and the cost of what you want to prevent. I think it's probably maybe one way to frame what we've been talking about. So MLOps is, I think, can be is very specific to your environment. You want to prevent bad things from happening. And so therefore, the solutions that you want to kind of implement, I think, are related to your environment and what the cost is of, of bad things happening. So I think, yeah, you should understand the impact and cost of what you want to bring. I love that. Thanks so much for hopping on, Seven. This has been such a cool conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Simba.